My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Back in 2004, arrangements were made for me to drive up to Lochaline on the Sound of Mull to produce an article for Boat Fishing Monthly magazine aboard Ian Burrett's boat on your marks looking at the fantastic common skate fishing he was providing at the time for his customers up there. Normally based down on Loose Bay, Ian would rent an old farmhouse at the Ardtonish estate, which he used as a base for both himself and his clients for a month or so each spring to target these huge fish in the deep waters outside the shelter of the loch. The suggestion was that I should try to time my trip with a visit by a party known as the Essex Boys, who regularly took two of the boats out for a few days during April of each year. In particular, Dave Hawkswood and Paul Maris, who had a track record with big fish both here in the UK and abroad, which, as we shall see on both counts spread across two separate recordings, is second to none. For this particular interview, we're going to concentrate on home water fishing where over the years that followed, both at Lochaline and at Loose Bay, myself and the Essex boys teamed up on several occasions and saw some incredible catches of fish. One day in particular saw Paul, who's linking up here with me today, stuck into a consecutive series of big common skate that would total up to more than four and a half hours of backbreaking work, representing the biggest one-man one-day catch in the history of Scottish common skate fishing. Now I know that this particular day fishing with Ian, despite the quality and sheer volume of fish caught, is far from an isolated red-letter day occurrence, both out of Lochaline and further south on Ian's regular home territory around the Mull of Galloway and Loose Bay. So perhaps we should go right back to the very beginning of all this with your introduction to Ian and the talk fishing, which would ultimately lead to the invite to join him for the big common skate day that we're going to talk about a little later on. Yes, um, regarding Ian Burrett, I mean, it started back, it must have been in the mid-90s, I read in one of the angling magazines that we was buying at the time, which was Sea Angler, and there was a guy from, I think he was from uh, Yorkshire area, did a feature in the magazine, two or three page feature, and he'd done a trip up Scotland, a place called Loose Bay, which I had never heard of, and they'd had an exceptional catch of um, tote. Did a good story about it, looked very interesting. It was a fish that we have had catches of off the Essex coast, but not in numbers, but it interested me. And I just fancied, I thought, well, it's, uh, I've never fished up Scotland. It was just an area I thought, well, it's worth a try. So I contacted a friend of mine named David Hawkswood, who I fish with quite regular, and I asked him if he fancied it, you know, and he said, yeah, all he said to me was book it. So I did no more. At the bottom of the page, after he'd done his feature, there was a contact number and what have you. So I phoned up Ian Burrett. Right from the onset with Ian, I mean, we sort of hit it off. Um, we had a lot of interests and it was quite familiar. And uh, he obviously over the phone sounded a passionate man about his angling, which I have been all my life. Anyway, we had a chat about it and asked him the normal questions, you know, prime times and what type of fishing was on offer and what have you. And to cut a long story short, basically what we did for the next season, we booked three days in June. Uh, we opted for three days because coming from Essex up to Scotland, I mean, we didn't realise how many miles it was. We knew it was a long run, but we thought, well, we're not going to go up there for one day. So the two of us decided to uh, take the bull by the horns and um, go up for three. Uh, left it in Ian's hands to book us in because we obviously... Not knowing the area at all, he, he booked us in some digs, which was the ship in, was, which was a pub, which sounded very convenient. Also did good grub, so it, the whole setup sounded good. The one question I did ask him was favourable tides, and he said that um, it was more productive in smaller tides, so we picked neat tides, not very small tides, but big tides, spring tides we avoided. So um, off we went. Didn't realise the miles that we we travelled. I mean, <laughs> we didn't clock it the first time we went up there, but we clocked it the second time, and it was about 420 miles, which was by far the furthest we'd ever travelled by road to go fishing. What was fortunate, we booked the three days fishing, which was a Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. So we went up on the Sunday. Uh, we left early Sunday morning, so there was very little traffic on the road. So to be honest, the journey up there was quite a pleasant journey. Anyway, met up with Ian, contacted me, obviously he had mobile phones, contacted him, met up, saw him in, he obviously fishing that day of Sunday, had a party and met him in, and uh, anyway, went down and had a few beers down the pub, 
heard all the good stories about what's being caught and all that. And uh, the pair of us had been fishing long enough, not, you know, thinking, well, yeah, we've heard all this before, but proof's in the pudding, so we'll wait and see. First, we were very lucky to start with. The first trip we had up there, the weather was in our favour, and uh, we was able to get out off and do what we wanted to do. The options we had going up there, the, the two main fish that they, they target are pollock inshore fishing, and I do mean inshore fishing, I mean very close to the rocks, all nice and light, light as possible really. You do float fishing, catch your uh, mackerel or um, launch, sand eels and what have you. They get numerous amount of pollock. You're not talking of big pollock, not like we get down on the south coast, but there's always a chance of a double-figured one, but uh, you get plenty around the two to six pound bracket. And obviously the tote, which was our main target, that's what took us up there. Well, the first day we fished, he couldn't get to where he wanted to go, but uh, so we, we pollock fished, but that was great fun. Nice and light, just two to a boat, and uh, we were very impressed with that. The second day, it backed off overnight, and uh, we was able to go for the tote mark, which was his favourite area, which is an area called the Scars, which is a, a group of rocks about 10 miles off of Dramore, out in Loose Bay. One of these rocks, which is the largest rock, is got a colony of gannets on it so obviously if you're fishing in the wrong direction when the wind's blowing it's a bit of a, an aroma that wafts across the sea but they're such a spectacular things to see but anyway basically what he was operating at the time when we first went up there were three boats and these were all Orkney fast liners 19 foot 6 boats so it's all fun fishing got 60 70 even routes on the back so you're doing 25 30 knots so you're able to get the different marks pretty quick uh, it was all good fun. One great thing to his advantage, operating three boats, two was his owned by Ian, which was on your marks and on your marks too. And there was another one called Go West, which was owned by a guy called Spike Millington. Ian run the whole operation up there, so all the bookies was done through one man, which is the only way to do it. But one thing in his favour, and we found out right from the start, was when you're going out with three boats, you obviously target an area, but you spread your boats out because people that do do tote fishing must realise that they're a pack fish and they do move about. Obviously, they're following the mackerel. That's what they're after. It's either sex or food up there with the tote. So they do move about. So you've got to locate them. So the good thing in Ian's favour was he put boats in different places and then as soon as one of the boats started taking fish they'd call each other up and say right they're here and you'd move around and then fish that designated area and it did work without a doubt there were times then that um, if we hadn't have done that method we wouldn't have located them you could be up there and be two or three hundred yards off where they were and yeah our first introduction of the tote I mean it was fantastic I think we the first day the two of us I think we had somewhere in the region of 20 tote Number-wise, we'd never had any experience, anything like that number down off the Essex coast. Although you do get big female tote out of the River Blackwater, which is where we fish mainly, never had numbers of tote like that. The size of the fish ranged between 15 and 40 pound, 45 pound probably was the biggest we had at that time of year. You don't get the big females that time of the year. We was going up in May and June. Most of the fish that we were catching there were male fish. They get a run of female fish later in the year, sort of September, October, but you don't get the numbers then. But there's always a chance of picking a big one up then. But we went up there really just for the fun of it and for the numbers. And uh, as I said, the first day we had out there, we had must be 20 fish. It was a learning experience, basically. We went up there with uptied rods, and uh, usual gear that we fished off the Essex coast. But basically... The more we went up there, the lighter we got. I mean, we was going down as really silly stuff in the end. I mean, we was using rods that, well, we used to call them knuckle dusters, basically. I mean, they would be bent double. But it was all fun. That's what I loved about it. It was all fun. We picked small tides. We avoided the big tides, so it was really like fishing. I mean, sometimes you was fishing with one ounce of lead, dropping back, fishing really light. And basically, it was all sport. I mean, some of the times when they were really on song, we was um, getting, like, sometimes we had, like, four rods on the go, and sometimes three or four of the rods all went off at the same time. 
and he was just manic. I mean, he was knit one pearl too, really. I mean, he was all round the boat, and it was just a, a laugh. I mean, the, the last we had, you lost a lot of fish, but um, it, that didn't matter because uh, they were there in numbers when they was really on song, and so you might have caught 20 on the day, but you probably had 30, 40, maybe 50 fish on during the course of the day. And this, normally, this period, it wasn't over the whole day. You might get an hour, and it was just absolutely manic. They'd switch on like a tap, and they would disappear. You'd try to locate them again, but sometimes you didn't find them. But in between time, the other thing that we was catching up there that was they were of specimen sign was bullhus. I mean, we must have had them up to 18 pounds, but they were some quality bullhus. Never caught them in numbers, but there was always a chance of a good bullhus. Other things we started that we we had as well. I mean, obviously, we were fishing with mackerel for the tote. Head and shoulders was the favoured bait, and we was picking up thornback ray. That was another bonus fish, although you swore about it at the time because we catch a lot of them off the Essex coast. But even so, sometimes it just broke the monotony because there were we did have periods of time where you could fish for three or four hours and not get a bite. But that was the type of fishing it was. Yeah, as I said, it was just great fun. Going back to that original first trip, we was that impressed. I mean, the first thing we did before we left, we booked for next year. Went up again the following year, had just as much fun again, lots of fish, come back absolutely elated, booked it again. The third year we went up, we took another two guys with us, Sid Smith and Dave Purcell, so we chartered two boats. And one thing that started there and then, the first time we ever went up there, was Ian always called us the Essex boys. We was always the Essex boys. And little did we know what things, and that, that name that stuck with us, and it still does, well, <laughs> what we've done with that name, with our escapades over the years with fishing, not only in this country but abroad, but I'll come, go into that later. But, uh, yeah, the Essex boys did make their mark in, in angling over the years. Anyway, going back to the tote fishing, the four of us went up the following year, and uh, the other two, they just loved it. And as I said, we was going lighter and lighter and lighter with the fishing. And um, it was just a rapport we met up we were out there. I mean, we just loved the place. The hospitality up there was great. Where we stayed was good. Food was good. Inexpensive. Although it was a drag, as I said, it was just worth it. It was a, another place. We even took, um, at the time, well, we, we still are, well, we were all members of Takely Sea Anglers, and we took the whole club up there one year. I think we had four boats they used. They brought another one in. It was just fun fishing. One of the big advantages, obviously, these boats they were using, they were launching off the shore. The location, being it's at the tip of a peninsula, whichever way the wind blew, Ian had sort of four main launching sites. He had East Tarbert, Port Logan... These two really were on the uh, the west coast, more or less in the Irish Sea. And then you had Dromore and another one we used to call the caravan site, which is further up Loose Bay. So whichever way the wind blew, there was sheltered water that he could launch his boat. And as I said, in really when there was really bad weather, whichever, if it blew from the west or blew from the east, you could get some sheltered fishing. But uh, obviously the marks you wanted to fish were out in, the, out in Loose Bay to the scars, and I must admit, not every time we went up there we was able to fish them. But that was where we were confident with the fishing. I've torn fish with Ian on many occasions out from Jamore and East Tarbot. But if I had to nominate one trip as a single standout, it would have to be the time I was sent up there again to do an article for Boat Fishing Monthly. And unbeknownst to me, yourself and Dave, who had already fished within the past, had chartered the boat. And what a day that turned out to be. In fact, I think it was the day we filmed the float fishing for Taupe. Yeah, I remember that very well. Ian, obviously, his brain's ticking all the time and he was coming up with ideas and he had noticed over the years that you was getting a slack period, a dead slack water. When there was no flow in the water, the tote seemed to switch off. And he was thinking of other options or alternatives to, to, to attract the fish. And one idea he came up with was Taupe on a float. It was like glorified pike fishing, basically. What he did, he uh, fishing very light. Obviously, when there's no water, you needed very little weight. So all he was putting like was an ounce drilled bullet on the line. And basically, he plumbed the depth. He just dropped down till he hit the bottom. And then basically, what he was doing, he was uh, reeling up, 
shorten it by about six or seven foot, putting a float on, and then just letting it drift back very slowly. Obviously, it was very little tight, but trying or even casting it out a little way. And basically, what he was doing, he was suspending a, a, a head and shoulders of a mackerel about six to eight foot off the bottom, but it was gradually drifting with the tide, what little tide there was. And straight away, he was getting takes, whereas the, the static baits was getting no um, interest at all. I mean, we're not talking about lots of numbers, but in on slack water, he was getting an extra two or three tope, whereas you would be getting none. So he, he sort of developed it, and, and it did work. And as you said, you come up there to do a feature on it, and this particular day, because we always went up there for three days, and that's those three days. It, I mean, it was, you, the weather was absolutely perfect, and it was it, they were on fire. I mean, as you said, I mean, I don't know how many we had that day. I know there's a bit on one of the film where Dave and I, I mean, rods are flying about all over the place. Ian's got hold of a rod. We're probably fighting three fish. He's nicked one, pearl two. And I think at the time I turned around the camera and said, I hope you're not recording this because it was absolute manic. But that was all part and parcel of the fun. I mean, we did have days. I can remember one day when I was saying that he located these fish. One of the boats found one and we'd all moved and fished that area. And this particular day, there were six anglers. There were three boats, six anglers. And up until about two o'clock, none of us had caught anything. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Ian was pulling his hair out. I can't believe it. So I know they're here. And it was just like someone had switched the tap on. And in two hours, the three boats had 92 tope. And it's not so much what we had. I mean, we must have lost, well, we lost at least more than what we actually caught. How big this shoal of tope were, it must have been massive. But we probably had on and fought 200 tope in that short period of time. And that's the sort of fishing it was. It was absolutely electrifying when it was on song. But uh, as I said, you I mean, we were lucky. We fished the prime tides at the prime time. And it did work when the weather was right. But I must admit, we, we you only remember the good days and you forget the bad ones. I mean, we did have days we just couldn't locate them, couldn't find them. But that's fishing. You took the... I think you need a few bad days because it brings you down to earth. And then when you do get good, and I think you appreciate more. And then, of course, what we was going to go on for, for the, the skate fishing, which is what he was, um, he mentioned to us that he was doing. It was like chalk and cheese, basically. And it was as a result of those early tote fishing trips that you ultimately got the invite from Ian to go up to Lockerlean to fish for the skate. Because at first it wasn't common knowledge that he was doing these trips and he was tending to handpick his clients. No, that's right. Basically, I mean, when he first started going up to Locker Line, uh, he was all done related to Ronnie Campbell. Ian's season is fairly short what he does. And he was thinking of something to do through the winter months because, I mean, there's very little work. It's a very isolated place and there was nothing to sort of stand him over the, the winter period. So he wanted something to bring some money in. And we come up with this idea of um, towing two boats up to a locker line and trying out this um, skate fishing. And he'd been up there a few times, well, just to try it all out, really. It was all on trial and error, really, just to suss it all out and look into it and find out what was available, accommodation and everything. And he'd done it a couple of years, but basically all he did, he went up there with him and Spike, and he just invited a few of his regular customers, and that's all it was, really. He didn't advertise it or anything like that. Just um, invited a few of his regulars to go up and give it a try. And it proved successful. And it, obviously, the more he went up there, the more he learned about it. And with Ian, I mean, he's passionate about what he does, and he does do it in depth, and he really, he, you know, he's, he's as good as he gets. I mean, over the years, I've been out with a lot of chart skippers, and I know Ian only runs small boats, but what he, well, he's so knowledgeable. He's, he's top man. There's no two ways about it. And, um, it has proved successful with escape. Anyway, he mentioned it to us and obviously we was becoming a regulars with him and he, he said, you know, would we like to give it a try and go up there and, uh, you know, give us all the information and what have you. Anyway, we, we was all four of us were up there at the time and we was all quite keen to do it. You've got to bear in mind that all four of us had never, ever caught a fish of anything near to a £100 or over. None of us. I think at the time, I think I'd caught the biggest one in the UK at the time between the four of us, and that was a £90 conger eel. 
but it was probably like 40 and 50 pound eels that we'd had between us. It was the biggest fish we'd ever seen. So we all went up there, had an idea what the year, I mean, he said, basically, he told us, he said, really, all you need is your congering gear. Just sort of primed us and told us what was best. And I said, well, we've never done it. What would you suggest? And he said, well, first and foremost, you're going to be fishing deep water. Conditions are going to be much different. Like all scape fishing, it's a waiting game. It's very hit and miss. But it's going to be a lot heavier. You're going to want conger gear, heavy gear. So nothing like we're experiencing loose bay. Anyway, we booked it. We booked small tides because when he told us the sort of depths we were going to fish, it sounded quite frightening because he said it's going to be a minimum of 400 feet. So we went up there. I think we went up there in early April, I believe it was, the first time we went up there. Now, we thought Dromore was a long way to go, which is 400-odd miles. Well, from Essex to Locker Line, it's um, near enough 550 miles. So it was a trek. I must admit, it was a long way. But once you get from Loch Lomond, the further north you go, the scenery is, is absolutely spectacular. I mean, that's what took our breath away. Where we live in Essex, I mean, it's it's flat. But up there, it's, it's well, it's, it's spectacular. You've got pine forest, mountains, hills, and, uh, oh, just, it, well, it was. I mean, we were just taking picture after picture after picture. And that broke the monotony of the distance we were travelling, really. You go by Glencoe, where you see the uh, ski lifts and all that, and they're skiing up there, there's snow on the top of the mountains. You go up as far as Onik, you get a ferry across from Onik, you go across and then you drop down towards Mull, uh, that direction, and uh, it just gets better and better. Locks and, I mean, we've never seen the scenery like it, so it was just, it was spectacular. Basically what we did, we arranged to meet Ian at Locker Line, at the... Um, little jetty there where he launched from because we didn't know where we were staying so contacted him by phone met him and when he came in with his group of guys we followed him to the accommodation where we were staying which is a place called a dornish which was an estate and it well you, you had to see it to believe it it was fantastic it was idyllic it really was it was paradise as far as we was concerned apart from the cold weather it, the setting was fantastic I mean, it was never early starts for us. We weren't going out till about half past eight, nine o'clock. But you'd get up, say, at seven, and you'd look out the bedroom window, and there were deer in the garden right by the, the where you were staying. And that was what it was like. I mean, we saw golden eagles, sea eagles, peregrine falcons, pine martins, all sorts of stuff. Unbelievable. So it, it was breathtaking. So that the first impressions were amazing. It really was. But... The thing we did notice was how cold it was. It was freezing, absolutely freezing. I mean, what we experienced the times we went up there, it was extreme fishing. I mean, you, you're open to all the elements. It probably gets the coldest and the worst weather out of all of it. I mean, it's all coming from the Atlantic. There's no respite. I mean, when you've got bad weather up there, you've got bad weather. And during the course of the years that we went up there, I think we was confronted with all of it. We had snow, sleep everything you needed your flasks not so much to drink you needed to hold the mug as a hand warmer it was that cold but um as i said going back to the four of us none of us had had a, a big fish of anything like we was going to experience and the first day out dave and i fished with ian and sid and the other dave they fished with spike and uh we'd been fishing a couple of hours and typical sky fishing uh, we, 14 0 hooks. I mean, it was, we was heavy gear, really heavy gear. I mean, the setup was, it was, um, flowing traces, 50 pound braid, 50 pound class rods and reels, two speed reels, harnessed up. The first time we fished up here, we were fishing approximately 500 feet of water. And that is deep. And basically, so you've got to bear in mind that when you do get a fish on, it's straight down. So it's all back breaking. I'd defy anybody to fish without a harness and a, and a butt pad because it, you can't do it. Your body wouldn't stand up to it. And the important bit with the tackle is the terminal tackle. We never fished any heavier than two pound of lead when we were up there, but we only fished the small tides. I mean, if you get it right, I mean, basically the skate there, the big skate, which is the ones we were after, the female ones, I'll go into that later, but the prime time is slack water. So if you do get the right tide, which is a very slack tide, you can, if you're lucky enough, get them to feed right the way through the tide. But that is very rare. Normally, you get a lot of two-hour period on and off, you know. So Ian would say, if you're lucky, you might get two p 
periods in the course of a day that you're going to stand a good chance. So the other hours, you're just sitting there doing nothing. But basically, the important bit with the terminal tackle, we fished with 150-pound traces with 14 O-hooks. You needed long traces, basically, because we were fishing with braid. We was using eight-foot traces, basically, because the tails of a skate is covered in thorns or spikes. So, I mean, anything that's going to touch braid would pop it. So you need a, a trace longer than the actual size of your fish. So hopefully, you're going to, while you're fighting the fish, you're going to keep your braid away from the fish. So we was using long traces, between 8 and 10 foot, and big baits. Baits we were using were like 4-pound coalfish, 2 or 3 mackerel. One of Ian's favourite baits was um, a key bab, as he calls it, which he chunks up about 3 or 4 mackerel, so you put in chunks up the line and then puts a coalfish on the bottom. So the baits were huge, but we didn't realise the sort of size of the things we were going to catch. And we'd fished the first day. We'd been fishing for about two hours, and Dave hooked into the first fish. I think it took him about 40 minutes to get it up. And bearing in mind, we're fishing in 19-foot-6 boats, so there's not a lot of room in the well. And when we got this fish up, what he does, he double-gaffs it, and you have one gaff either side in these wings, and you basically just lift it in and slide it on over the gunnel, and it just drops into the boat. And the pair of us just looked at this thing, and it, it's a monster. I mean, it's monstrous. I've never, we've, I mean, we've caught thornback skate, but things of this size, I mean, it's just like a prehistoric animal. I, I couldn't believe it. I just said to Dave, after, I can't believe you've just caught that. It was huge. I mean, to give you a guideline, we're talking of fish that's got sort of a five foot six to six foot wingspan, and it's seven foot six to eight foot long. So it literally filled the well of the boat up. We obviously took photographs of it. Ian measured it because with skate, they obviously don't kill any of these things. They're, they're, um, as far as we're concerned, they're a protected species. They've got a good idea now. They've got this chart. So you measure the length against the wingspan and you go down and it gives you a guideline and it's fairly accurate to what the fish weighs. So basically you measure it, take your photograph, and then you put them back. And it doesn't do them any harm, gaffing or anything like that. To prove the point, we have caught the same fish twice in one day, so it certainly doesn't upset them in any way. And, uh, yeah, so Dave caught the first one, which was £159. And, uh, well, it was amazing. And during those three days, the four of us all had fish over £150. And later, which I'll talk about shortly, we didn't realise what records we were going to set in the forthcoming year, so we went up there. But so uh, we was all over the moon. I think we caught somewhere between us over three days, we caught 12 common skate, and I think 10 of them was over the magical £100 mark. Basically, you get, obviously, males and females, and all the females, most, I would say 99% of the fish you catch over £150 are going to be females. They're the big ones. But the males, for sport, by far and away, they've got attitude. They don't give up. They fight. They really do. I mean, if you get a, if you're fortunate enough to hook and catch a £120 male, you'll get much more of a fight out of one of them than you do, which is with a female which is more of a dogged fight. I mean, they are just sheer weight. And the problem we found when we first went up there using 50-pound braid is lifting them off the bottom because it's just like a suction. And, I mean, there were times there. I mean, I remember one day, I think it was the second year we went up, Dave had a skate on, and he never, ever got it off the bottom. He just couldn't lift. We couldn't lift it off the bottom. And I'm talking about a guy that's a strong guy, and he, he was lent into this fish for a solid hour, giving it as much pressure as he could never got it off the bottom so what we did ian sent away and got some commercial braid and from about two years onwards we was using 80 pound commercial braid which sounds a bit crude but to be honest you need it to get these fish off the bottom and it did having that little bit more leverage certainly give you that advantage because uh, other than that you was just sitting there and going nowhere these big females we found they the average fight of them was about from 20 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on maybe tide. And sometimes, I mean, some of them did have a bit of attitude and they, um, you know, you get them two-thirds of the way up and they go all the way down the bottom because that's one thing with these skates. You've got to have your clutch set right 
because once they get rolled their wings and get their head down, there's no way you're going to stop them. You can't bully them. You've just got to just hold on and tire them out, basically. I mean, something's got to give in the end. Yeah. And it's the weakest link, and probably more often than not, the weakest link's the angler. Because, um, as I said, it is back-breaking. You do go through the pain barrier. So how exactly did you work things between yourself and Dave? Because I know he doesn't like to feel left out of things, on top of which he'd also just had a triple heart bypass. Yes, that's right. When we first went up there, we each took an individual rod. We had one rod apiece. Even with toe fishing, Ian's got his own rods, and he'll, he'll put out one or two rods. So more often than not, when we first went up there, we had four rods out, two of which was ours, and two were Ian's. And basically, our, the understanding we had with the rods, if there was a take on our own individual rod, we'd take it, and if it was Ian's, we'd take it in turns. If someone had caught one, then it, we'd have it, and blah, vice versa. So it worked out fairly well. Sometimes one of us might catch two or three more than another. But to be honest, over the duration of the years we did it, there was very little in it. There weren't a lot of difference in it. But yeah, Dave and I are very competitive. And it's always him and me. I mean, we always want to get, if I've got one, he gets one, he wants to get one bigger and vice versa and all that. He's a whinger. He does moan and groan. He likes action. I can sit there far longer than him. I, I can sit there all day long and, you know, I, I can take the rough with a smooth and, if you don't get a fish, you don't get a fish. But with Dave, he wants to do things, move here. Can't we try this? Do that. Dave is an uncoiled spring. He lives hard. He plays hard. He works hard. He's a very fortunate man. He's made a lot of money, but he's done it his own way, and I admire him for that. But he can't relax. He's one of these. He's wound up, and he, you know, and he's, he is like a coiled spring. I'm surprised, to be honest. He stuck to fishing the amount of years that he's had actually done because he hasn't got a great deal of patience. But, um, yeah, the time you, you mentioned about um, he had surgery. I know he's had bypass surgery and he had something else. I forget what it was now. I know it was internal stuff. And basically he was like on convalescence for two or three months. And a month after the operation, we was up there fishing for common skate and there he is fighting a skate of about 200 pounds and he should be convalescing. But that's Dave. He just plays hard. In the introduction, I mentioned one particular standout trip, which turned out to be more than a day to remember. In fact, some might even go as far as to describe it as an ordeal. I'd already been out with him as travelling back, and for some reason, Dave Hawkeswood also had to go back to Essex, leaving you as the only angler in the boat with Ian, and about to experience possibly the hardest day's work you've ever had in your life. It was just amazing. We always went up there for three days. And during the course of fishing the first day, I think that that first day we had four, maybe five stars. I know I had two. I think Dave had three. But during the course of the actual day, Dave has always got his phone on. It's always ringing. He can't switch off from work. That's the difference between me and him. When we go fishing, I'll switch my phone off all day. I don't want all that hassle. But Dave does get his phone calls. And he had a phone call, and there was a bit of a crisis at work. One of the guys that worked for him, I believe he'd severed a finger, but it was serious stuff so basically he said oh, oh, it's no good he said when we get in he said I'm going to have to go back so uh, fortunately there was the four of us up there and we'd gone up in two vehicles so basically what it meant I stayed up there and got a lift back with uh, Sid and the other Dave and Dave after the first day's fishing basically he just hit the road and went home so it meant that I had two days fishing to myself I had the boat to myself and fortunately, those three days, the wet, all of, everything was right. The conditions were good. Weather was good, obviously. The tides were perfect. They were very small tides. So it was, you know, like the five we had the previous day, they weren't during just one little session. It sort of spread out during the course of the whole day. Everything was right. So, yeah, I went out there. I think we had three rods on the go. And um, little did I know at the time what it was going to be it's a job to remember exactly but I, I basically i felt like i was fighting fish more or less the whole day that we didn't have a, a manic period like when there was two or three rods going off at the same time but there was something happening most of the day and it, it fished right the way through the tide and little did i know it wasn't so much the number of fish i caught but it was the quality of the fish i mean it was just amazing 
well, I didn't realise at the time, but Ian timed me. I, he, and he said afterwards that I was fighting skate for four and a half hours. I ended up, I landed five skate out of seven. I had seven fish on, two that I dropped halfway up, and five I had. And these fish went, just to give you an idea, I've got it written down because Ian sent me an email. I couldn't remember the weights, but they went 199 pound, 214, 203, 198, and then a small watch, which he said sport my average, which was 162. So that actual day, I had five fish that went 976 pound with an average weight per fish of 195.2 pound, which was absolutely phenomenal. You asked me, can I remember that? I can remember the pain. You do, you have to go through a pain barrier because, as I said, we was fishing 500 feet plus of water. Although the conditions were good, I mean, the, the, you're fishing in a small boat so you haven't got a great deal of leverage and all the time you're fishing your line is going straight down so all the pressure is on the small of your back and your arms but you obviously you try not to use your arms as much as you can because you you've got to be harnessed up because the duration of that time your, your body couldn't take it so you relied on your your harness and your butt pad basically but it was just a, a phenomenal catch and afterwards i mean when you said about that I think it was the following day, after catching that, I had my PB of 219 pounds. I believe I had nine fish in three days, and the average weight was 190 pounds for the nine fish, which was absolutely amazing. And the other thing which made our trips up there, I think we did, we did six years back to back up there, and it was, I've got this written down, what Ian sent me this email, and he basically said, my records, I, I'll go back to 2002. You certainly all achieved the £150 plus in 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005 and 2006. So, as I said, our record, well, I don't, I don't know if it'll ever be equaled. As far as he was concerned, it was the Essex boys, and that name stuck basically with us. We was always called the Essex boys. And, uh, yeah, as you said, it was a trip I'll never forget. And I think, Dave, I had the pleasure of phoning him up that night and telling him what I caught, which didn't go... I can't repeat what he said to me, but you can imagine what it was like. Yeah, no, he was he was pleased for me, without a doubt. And I've got photographs to prove it, but that was... I mean, this is about my fishing. I mean, later on, I'll go what, all the years I've done it, but it all, to me now, it's all about memories and achievements. And without doubt, those three days, especially that one day, was up there with the best of them. I should never forget that as long as I live. Now the term Essex Boys refers to the group, but within that group you also had your own pet name of Golden Balls. Well yeah, <laughs> I was given the name Golden Balls well before David Beckham. It started off with my sea angling club. I just, well I don't know, I, I fish hard, I'm very competitive when I'm fishing. I, I've not really, I've never been a match angler, but if I'm in a competition, way I look at it, I'm in it to win it, so I will do my utmost. And I have won a lot over the years, and I did acquire this name by a few of the club members golden balls because i there were times when we was fishing a competition it comes to the last 10 minutes and then i'd get a bite and not only was it the best fish of the day it won me a trophy or whatever so i was given golden balls and ian found out about this and, and about the second year we was up there fishing for the common skate it was my turn to david caught a fish on i think on his rod and ian had had a, a take on one of his rods so he said here paul you take it and um I did, and the rod he, he, he handed me, I, I just fell in love with. I, it was absolutely perfect. It was such a, I was so impressed with it. And I just sat in the sights. I said, what a fabulous rod. And he said, yeah, he said, I've got a guy up here. He said, make some for me. He said, I told him what I want, explained it to him. And he said, he's made me a couple of these from blanks. And he said, they're beautiful. And I said, cool, I'd love a rod like that. He said, well, if you're interested, I could get it, we'll get one made for you. Well, to cut a long story short, there was four of us up there, and three of us decided we'd like a rod made to order. I think at the time they were £150. So he said, well, you, you know, take the time. I said, well, we're not going to need until we come up there again next year. So basically, we went up there the following year, and the first thing he did when we met up with him, he presented us with these three rods, one for Sid, one for me, and one for Dave Altswood. Yeah, they opened them up, and uh, David got didn't we didn't know it at the time because he said when he handed we saw so we we personalised for him. And Dave opened his up, and he got Dave Hawkeswood on his rod. Sid opened his one up, which was quite funny really because 
Ian had got the ro- name wrong. He'd got he'd given Sid his Christian name, but he put Purcells as a surname, which was the other Dave's name. So he got his name wrong, but never mind. Sid's forgiven him for that. But when I come to open mine up, I've got on mine Paul, and in brackets, Golden Balls Maris. So yeah, I'm still Essex boy, but I'm Golden Balls as well. <laughs> so we've looked at the top and skaters' potential big fish targets, but there is one other big growing species which I know you also have an obsession with and have invested a lot of time, effort and money into, that being the conga. Conga, yeah, without a doubt. It's one of my passions, I must admit. It's not everybody's favourite fish to catch. But really, it starts conga fishing with me. I mean, my introduction to wreck fishing goes back to the mid-60s, late late 60s. Where I live in Essex, all the fishing we were used to was a bit of whiting bashing and a bit of codding walking on the nays and stuff like that, but we, we had no wrecking experience at all. So my first introduction to wreck fishing was holidays, basically. At the time, all we had was one holiday a year, and ours was a trek down the West Country. First one, I think, I went to with my wife's family was Carbis Bay, just outside St Ives, and I think the first time I ever went fishing down the West Country was out of Penzance. We went shark fishing, which wasn't very productive. I didn't see any show. Caught a few bits and pieces, but nothing to inspire me. But after that, I think the next time I went down, it was at Mevagissi. And then also we went and had a few holidays down Tor Bay, Paynton and Torquay. So obviously the um, the place that I went to and fell in love with was Brixham and Mevagissi. And back then, not knowing really what history was going to be made by these boats that I fished out of, the three I can remember... It was our unity out of Brixham, and the two out of Mevagissi was Karen Jane, skipper by Colin Williams, and a boat called Eileen, skipper by Bernard Hunkin. And the trips I had out with those three, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I only went out once on our unity, but the trips I had out with Colin Williams and Bernard Hunkin, it was phenomenal. I mean, it was, well, I've never experienced anything like it. You've got to bear in mind, going down on holiday in one car, and there was like five of us, didn't take any fishing tackle, so it was hiring tackle. Well, going back in the 60s, the tackle that was available was awful, really, to be honest. It was crude, rods were heavy, solid fiberglass or even steel, big reels, gearing was awful, everything. I mean, it was so crude. And we was, the fish, the wrecking, the wrecks then, was absolutely full of fish. I mean, it was the old recognised thing then, you had to get through the ling and pollock and cod and stuff to get to the conga. So you didn't really, I mean, you was catching more ling than anything else. But once the conga came on, I mean, all I can remember was having these fish on, it was nearly ripping your arms off. And you was getting smashed up. I've had rods break. I've had real shatter, all sorts of stuff. I mean, these to me was like monsters from the deep. So this really was my initiation with conga. I mean, I think at the time when I started doing it, I think the record at the time was about 88 to 90 pound conga. So a 100 pound conga wasn't, you know, it was a dream really, but none of it had never been caught. Now, I remember coming in there one day at Brixham because um, along the quayside there were all these little kiosks that used to be advertising all the fishing and trips and photographs. And you see the photographs of these sort of 60, 70 pound eels. And to me, those monsters, basically. All I wanted to do was to catch one, really. But as I said, it, all, all it was for me was the odd one day or maybe two days once a year. But that was my initiation to wreck fishing. And uh, this went on for about, I don't know, 10 years maybe doing this. And that was, uh, that's all I did down at the West Country. I mean, other than that, it was still usual fishing, cod fishing, which was, and still is one of my passions. I do love my cod fishing. But uh, as I said, I, I only had this one pop a year at wreck fishing. Then obviously I got wrapped up in work, got married, had a family. My wife and I were on a garden centre, which took up all our time. We did have the odd holiday abroad, but in a way, I didn't do a lot of wreck fishing. I didn't go down the south coast or, or the west coast for a few years. And then later on, more or less in the 90s, things eased. I took an early retirement. I retired in 2002. But from the late 90s, I started, I really got into it again. Well, no, probably the early 90s I got into it again. Joined a club, take the sea anglers. We started going out down at Weymouth, fishing down there. 
I won't name all the boats, but we obviously, we mixed it about, done some wreck fishing, reef fishing, fished the shambles and stuff like that, but started catching conger again with the reef. That got me into it again. I started fishing quite regular with a guy called Paul Whittle on Offshore Rebel. We started going over to Alden, he catching a nice lot of fish over there and what have you. And he just happened to mention to me, he said, um, we've just started, he said, this is the first year we've done, well, last year was the first year we've done it. He said they're doing a three-day conga festival. Three days conga fishing. Prizes are up for the biggest eels and what have you. Anyway, sounded interesting. So we decided to have a go at it. We charred the whole boat and there was like six or eight of us. We went down there. And in 2001, which really got me going into the conga, I was fortunate enough to catch a 90-pound conga, which was by far and away the biggest eel I'd ever caught, which won me the trophy. And um, since then, to be honest, I've really gone, well, I mean, the holy grail to us conga anglers is a 100-pound conga. I mean, since then, I mean, back in the 90s, there was a lot of big 100-pound congas called down at Plymouth, which was the, the mecca. Also, it was the, the, the base for the uh, British Conga Club, which I've been a member for a number of years now. So I got more involved in it, started to fish their competitions, and uh, it's gone from there. It's gone from strength to strength. I do a lot of it now. I'll probably go... Well, I'll book at least 20 days a year wreck fishing for conga. Knowing the weather in this country, I'm happy if I get half of those. I lose no no end of them. So frustrating. Seems to be all the good tides when you want to go conga fishing, which are the slacker tides. Not, not neat. I don't like neat tides. I do like a bit of tide for conga fishing. But it's, uh, I've been very unlucky this last couple of years with bad weather, so we have lost a lot of good trips. But yeah, I am passionate. Still my goal is the 100-pound conga. My best today, I had a 91-pound, 14-ounce conga down at Plymouth about four years ago on Size Matters with Graham Hannaford, which is another famous charter skipper. I was very lucky year before last. I won a, a major chartered boat association. They have a conga championship, and there's a £1,000 prize for the biggest deal, and I was fortunate to win that with an £81.6 ounce conga. So, yeah, I've um, I've done the, the halcyon days with these boats with, well, the decks were awash with fish as they were back then, which nowadays is barbaric. There's no two ways about that. But at the time, it was the in thing. I mean, there was such an abundance of fish down there, no one seemed to worry about quotas and things like that. It was It was unheard of. There was just an abundance of fish. You just caught the fish. It was perks for the, the skipper and what have you. Personally, I've never been a fillet hunter. What I do now, basically, I target my fish. Things have improved. I mean, I've, I have fished now for 51 years. And one of the big things I've noticed now is the improvements in tackle. Rods and reels now are superb. There's no two well. I wish I'd have had those that sort of tackle back in the 60s and 70s. I really do. You can't fault it. I mean, the, the odds are now in favour of the angler. Not only the angler, but the, the boats themselves. I mean, the electronics now that are on a boat. I can remember back in the early days spending hours looking for a wreck. Wasting time, can't find it, you know. And, but now, I mean, it is so simple. So everything really now is in your favour. Unfortunately, there aren't the fish about now to what they used to be. There really isn't. It is improving. And I think a lot of this is to do with Far more anglers at returning fish. I know there are some fish that you can't return, like ling and stuff like that. They don't go back. But uh, conga are being put back a lot. Bass, a lot of bass put back, which is good. There's a lot of people now who wouldn't dream of killing shark. That's a persecuted animal. I mean, that's another story. But uh, I wouldn't kill a shark. No way. And I know Ian Burrett. I don't think Ian Burrett would ever speak to me if he heard I caught killed a shark. Tope go back. There are records now being broken but will never be claimed because people, and I admire them for it, don't want to kill the fish just to have their name in a record book. I wouldn't want to do it. Any other large fish on the radar, such as specifically targeting, say, big sharks? Well, we I've got another side to my my coin, really. Uh, I, ha, I do and still do and have done a lot of fishing abroad, which we will go into another time. So I have, yes, I've caught hundreds of sharks, lots of sharks. Not in the UK. I have had the odd shark in the UK, but more by luck than judgment. I haven't really targeted them as such. But yes, you're right. I mean, the last couple of years, there's been a shark explosion, really, off the west coast of Wales, what have you. 
they've been catching a lot. I mean, I, I, I fish out of Plymouth and the boats down there have been getting a lot of blues, real numbers. I mean, like 40 or 50 a day. So yeah, they have made a comeback. I haven't personally targeted them yet. I'm not saying I won't, but as I said, I've got a few targets that I do in the UK. Still want the conga. Oh, that's, that's my main target. I know it sounds silly, and I, over the years I've probably caught two or three thousand bass. I've never had a ten-pound bass, so that's another one I want to cross off the list. I've got lots of targets. I've certainly got targets abroad. I know we're going to make another recording of what I do abroad, so we, I, I won't say any more about that as yet. But yet, I almost certainly will um, go for stuff. Now there's bluefin tuna showing off of Ireland and what have you. There are more f- sort of exotic fish being caught now. There is talk of a billfish being seen. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me one day if there's a marlin caught or something like that. Broadbill maybe more than a marlin. They're out there. There's definitely out there. I mean, they are migrating fish. And I think the global warming, as they call it, I think the sea is getting warmer. Our winters, I mean, although it was exceptional last winter, our winters, we don't seem to get the, the harsh, extreme weather we get now. We seem to get more wet and windy weather now. So I think the, the 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 water is warming up more. So there there is chances of catching different types of fish. When I target a fish, I I go I look into it in depth. And if I do it, I'm not I I wouldn't be one sort of just phone up a skipper down in um, Wales and say well, I'll I'll have a day's fishing down there. If I do it, I'm going to do it properly. I will look into it, pick the seasons, pick the tides, and I will target that fish maybe for at least a year. And I won't just go down there once. I will hit it and do it properly. Not on the off chance of, you know, going down there once and hopefully catch one. That's an, I don't look at it like that. I like to edge my bets. I keep tabs. I mean, I read all the angling mags. I go on the internet, Facebook and stuff like that, forums and what have you. And I'm aware of what's being caught all around the country. This is my sport. I am passionate about what I do. And I love every minute of it. I'm 67 tomorrow, would you believe? It's my birthday tomorrow. And I'm as passionate about fishing now as what I was when I was 25 years old. Well, I can more certainly vouch for that because I've seen you in action. I'm passionate too about the foreign fishing, which, as you hinted earlier, we'll be recording next as a separate entity later. So with that in mind, maybe now would be a good time to call a halt, take a break, then regroup for a look at your exploits in the Marlin World Cup. For now then, my thanks to Paul Maris for exploring the UK big fish scene with us here. 